Hello and welcome to Not Just Paleo. I'm your host, Evan Brand. And my question to start this off today is, are you someone who takes supplements and herbs and vitamins because you've read somewhere that they're good for you or you found that something relaxes you a little bit or energizes you a little bit? Well, you may rethink taking some of these things so liberally after this show today with Dr. Dan Kalish and I as we discuss brain chemistry a little bit more and talk about why it's a little bit more important to learn to test and actually figure out what your brain might be deficient in from a lifetime of stress and nutrient deficiencies and things like that rather than just jumping in and throwing in some supplemental herbs or vitamins to change the way you feel and think. So we're going to get right into it. It's going to be a good show today. And I just want to thank you for the people across the planet that are leaving reviews for the show. And if you haven't yet, can you please do that? It would be so helpful. Just when you're on iTunes on Not Just Paleo, click on that ratings and reviews tab there, write in some stars, write in your comment and submit it. That will change my life and change other people's too by spreading the show to them. So thank you. And I hope you check out the website. There's a lot of new content there and blog articles that you may be missing out on if you're only an exclusive podcast listener. So I hope to see you there at notjustpaleo.com. Let's get into it. All right, folks, I'm here with Dr. Dan Kalish, and we both just went from the sitting position to the standing position for this podcast. And he's a pioneer, so he uh, works with functional medicine, and he has 20 years of successful clinical results and over 8,000 patients, so I'm going to have a lot of catching up to do. And he's seen a ton of patients in his private practice, and he's certified over 700 practitioners worldwide in what he calls the Kalish Method, which hopefully we'll get into today. And let's see, he received his BA in Physiological Psychology and Philosophy and completed his chiropractic degree in California. So, Dr. Kalish, thank you, sir, for coming on the show. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So I love talking about neurotransmitters. I've had my friend Beverly Meyer on the show multiple times with me to talk about them. And now you seem like the male expert in neurotransmitters. Is that safe to say? Yeah, I've been doing this for a while now. I've gotten pretty good at it, understanding it. It's a complicated subject too. Yeah. It seems like people modulate their neurotransmitters all day, every day, and yet they have no clue that they're doing it. Yeah, that is basically the main motivator for most human behavior when you think about it. Maybe a few hormones tossed in there and the brain chemicals that controls what we eat, how you feel, what you think you're going to do the next hour, uh, in terms of all kinds of behavioral patterns. Right. Addiction addiction is controlled by neurotransmitters I and mean, a lot of stuff. So are neurotransmitters, do they affect more bodily functions than hormones? Or like if you were to compare and contrast those two, what's that look like? Yeah, so it's an integrated system, you know, the neuroendocrine system. So it includes 180 or more neurotransmitters and then all the different hormones. But to a large extent, the hormones are under the control of the brain. And they, they gave out the Nobel Prize in the year 2000 for this research study they did on, so it's called DARP32, D-A-R-R-P-32. And um, that showed that dopamine is one of the major controllers of all the other neurotransmitters along with controlling most of the hormones in the brain, uh, most of the hormones in the body. So the brain is controlling the hormones more so than the other way around. That's interesting. And so for people that 
aren't aware of this fact, I mean, even simple things like listening to good music can do something to boost up our neurotransmitters, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Music or exercise, um, sleep has a huge impact. Yeah. Even just, you know, if your cell phone dings and you get a text message, you know, that's going to cause your brain to squirt out some dopamine just from the, you know, tendency that you have to want to respond to something as simple as a text. Right. So the addiction to technology is not surprising to you at all then in your experience. I mean, you've got to see this thing develop over the past 10, 15 years. Oh, yeah. I mean, people are becoming more and more deficient in neurotransmitters for a couple of reasons. One is because we're pretty stressed. Um, although, you know, probably human beings have been stressed to different degrees all throughout time. But, you know, one thing that's definitely building that's new and bad is our exposure to neurotoxins, so chemicals in the environment that destroy or damage brain cells. So you could have a decent amount of neurotransmitters in the brain, but if a lot of the brain cells are damaged from some kind of environmental toxin, then they're not going to fire properly. So that's kind of an independent problem that's happening as well, maybe even more serious than the stress that we're under. So what are the most common neurotoxins that we're exposed to on a daily basis that we don't try to expose ourselves to? It just kind of pops in there. Probably mercury. You know, you wouldn't think that, you know, well, obviously if you have mercury fillings in your mouth, you'd be getting a mercury exposure. But when, when we burn coal, mercury goes into the air and then it comes down into the oceans, rivers, streams, food supply, everywhere. Lead is pretty prevalent. You know, we burned leaded gasoline for a long time in this country. So lead got spewed over every major highway in the United States. And it doesn't just disappear, you know, it doesn't just like get up and leave. So there's um, cadmium now, you know, and catalytic converters is a problem. And then there's just the general run of the mill chemicals with, if you're using things like uh, deodorant that has chemicals that are toxic, uh, Johnson's baby and baby shampoo, believe it or not, has toxic chemicals that can damage the brain. Um, colognes and perfumes tend to be pretty high and even just like walking into a clothing store, you know, they soak clothes in formaldehyde to preserve the color and whatnot. So even just walking into a shop that's selling new clothes, you can get a chemical exposure that will affect your brain. It's amazing. Yeah, I work for a company. Luckily, we're switching all of our shirts over to 70% 70 bamboo and then the other 30% is organic cotton. So I'm super pumped to be able to wear healthy clothes because I kind of got the clothing thing brought onto my radar and it started making me think about... I mean, this is uh, maybe tangential, but maybe not. Uh, like things like testic testicular cancer and guys wearing boxers and things that are tight on our genitals. I mean, for men or women. I mean, things like breast cancer and things like that. And then you think about these toxins that could be in the clothes. Have you seen or read anything about that or have experience in that? Well, you know, I think uh, the main impact with the uh, clothing is that you know, it takes up to three pounds of pesticides to grow the cotton just for a single t-shirt. So it's the environmental exposure that happens that's the danger. Now, or so if you're buying organic cotton clothing, what you're doing is, you know, kind of rewarding the farmers that are trying to grow cotton without chemicals. And they're also then after the clothing is produced, as I mentioned, you know, they put all kinds of potentially dangerous things in the clothing in order to ship it and in order to, um, you know, preserve the color and whatnot while it's out in the stores, in the sunshine. And so there could be additional chemicals that are added in after the actual product is produced. Um, so there's kind of two levels of that. One would be your personal exposure, which would be 
you know, like that new clothing smell. And the other that's probably more important would be all the pounds of pesticides they use just to grow the cotton. So, the so really, it's is, one of the most heavily sprayed crops in the world. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Right. So the question is, though, when you wash it, can a non-organic clothing ever be safe at that point? Yeah, I don't think it's. I don't think that part is that bad. I think probably most of the chemicals come out once you wash things a few times. Uh, but you know, the three pounds of chemicals that they dumped on the cotton crops to grow the the cotton that you have in that T-shirt that's probably much more you know long-term damaging. The thing is, that it's the stuff that we don't see that's impactful. It's like um, just because you're not around while they're dumping all the cotton pesticides doesn't mean they're not getting into you know your food supply and your body pretty right. directly. It's it's been a, a real big consciousness shift for me over the past couple years because you really have to dig deeper and you gotta, I mean, you almost have to just pull yourself out of your own body and look at yourself in a third third uh, person perspective to see what you're actually doing because someone could think, oh, I just sit in my car and go to work and I work in an office and then I come home and eat organic food. I'm not exposed to any toxins, but then you th start thinking about water and skincare products and healthcare products like you've mentioned and clothing. But uh, man, the gas story, I mean, it's amazing to think that we used to put lead in gasoline. And there was such a dark story that I've read about how some of the scientists, I think it was one main guy, I can't remember his name now, who came up with the research that was like, look, look at the mercury levels uh, I don't know if it was mercury or lead or a combination of both that were measured in the ocean. And then he took it to these huge uh, head honchos of, I guess, the oil companies at the time in the 70s, of course, before I was born. And they basically basically shunned him. And mm -hmm. then we had to wait another 20 years or so before the the mainstream finally caught up and said, yeah, let's take lead out of gasoline. I mean, that's insane to me. Yeah, people aren't. You know, it's just sort of out of sight, out of mind. If you can't see the damage that's happening, you don't experience it, and people aren't really noticing. You know, if you look around or you think about it for a few minutes, you realize, well, you know, what is the, what's the evidence that this is really a problem? You know, global climate change is kind of obvious one. Another one would be the rates of increases in autism in children, you know. Right off the bat, I mean, it's like the, if you look at the charts on how autism levels have gone up and California alone in the last 15, 20 years, you can just see how neurotoxins are penetrating into the food supply, getting into mom's bodies, getting into babies' bodies. And then these brains that are young and developing take a pretty big hit from it. You see it in older adults with increases in depression and Parkinson's disease and other kinds of degenerative brain disorders that are directly related to chemicals. So, I mean, it's all around us. If you're paying attention, you can see the damage as it's occurring. Uh, but people haven't really woken up to that yet. I think, like back when Al Gore was first talking and talking about global warming, you know, and he made that movie, and it was just sort of like shocking to everybody, and no one really was totally buying into it. And now, when you have you know the hottest summers on record year after year, you know, everyone's kind of you know 15, 20 years later acknowledging that this is a problem because we're experiencing it. I think we're kind of at that same learning curve with uh, neurotoxins and how they're causing brain damages. I mean, the evidence is all there right in front of us, but no one's really waking up worried about neurotoxins every morning, right? That's not like a mass movement of people that are concerned about that issue yet. Um, although, I mean, how many kids have to have autism before we start to pay attention? You know, it's kind of shocking. Yeah, I'm thinking the same thing because the last report that I read, it's 1 in 67. Maybe mm -hmm. it's even more popular than that now. Do you know of uh, 
Yeah, it's rate. under it's less than one in a hundred, and that's that should be scary enough to people that we would all start to think about this. But you know, not quite there yet. Right. So if you were gonna have a baby, what? I mean, how? I mean, how? It's almost like how do you even start? I mean, does the woman throw out? Every skincare pro I mean, I've covered skincare products and stuff like that on my show before. So say somebody's already got all organic diet, all organic skincare products. Let's just say that they switched out their whole wardrobe to organic clothing and they try to go out in nature. They have HEPA air filters in their house. They take magnesium baths. I mean, is there more that we can add to the blueprint or recipe for success in your experience? Oh yeah, absolutely. This is my whole my whole clinical practice is that we do lab tests for detoxification and to measure the levels of brain chemicals. So you run a simple urine panel and you can figure out what your antioxidant protection is like against toxins, what your uh, liver detox pathways are like, what your methylation is like. B12, folic acid, B6, all the sulfur-containing amino acids, all the different nutrients that your body uses to get rid of these toxins, you can measure. And if you're low in them, then you can take them in supplement form so that your body can kick all the toxins out. And then there's two main reasons why you might see low levels of nutrients that help you detox. One is that just some people genetically just don't have a really great detox capacity. So those are people that would be given an equal exposure, more likely to have an autistic child, or given an equal exposure, you know, more likely to pick up Parkinson's disease or something like that. Um, and then outside of the genetic defects, you know, some people just have a higher than ideal exposure. So they may have, you know, mercury fillings in their mouth and have eaten a lot of processed food, or they may be living in an area like Los Angeles where, you know, the air quality is really poor. So it's, you know, both environmental exposure and then the genetic ability to get rid of these toxins. So what we're seeing now in general in practices like mine is people who are genetically predisposed to not be good at detoxing get really sick and have all kinds of neurological and other kinds of health problems, anxiety, depression, compulsive overeating. And people who are genetically in pretty good shape that way and don't have a lot of exposure think that the genetically messed up people are crazy because they're like, I don't know. I mean, we grew up in the same town. I'm fine. Why is my buddy, you know? walking around with his depression problem from neurotoxins in his brain. You know, it's just a luck of the draw. If you're not good at that particular process genetically, then. and this isn't something that, you know, natural selection has really been operating on for that long. I mean, think about, you know, a thousand years ago, you might get a poison dart in your butt, okay, and you have a neurotoxin and, you know, you would die if you weren't good at clearing it or a poison mushroom that you would eat or something. But, you know, the design team didn't anticipate tens of thousands of different kind of chemicals in the environment, many of which act as neurotoxins, right? So, you know, it's like, a, it's a sort of a new problem, let's say it that way. And, you know, the patients that I work with the most closely usually have a combination of these two things. They have, you know, genetic defects and enzymes, so they are not good at breaking down toxins in the first place. And so they need a lot of extra nutritional support to do that. And they have, you know, a toxic burden that's built up. So absolutely, lab testing prior to having a baby or just lab testing just to see what your status is like um, makes a lot of sense to me because it's all, you know, based on uh, scientific data. You just run the numbers and if a person needs the extra support, you get them the nutrients that are indicated based on the lab. Right. So I, I want to eventually get into urine testing for neurotransmitters, but what are 
the names? I know you've kind of thrown them out there, but what are kind of the maybe the top three or five specific tests that people should be getting if they feel like they're just starting the horse race late and they just they just don't feel like everybody else, even though they feel like they're doing everything right? What are those tests? Well, in regards to uh, toxins and antioxidants and methylation, there's a profile called an organic acids test, organic acids. And there's only two or three labs in the U.S. that run that. It's a urine sample, and it's you know something that most integrative practitioners know about, and they should know how to interpret it. And that'll just show you you know all these things that we're discussing: B12, folic acid, B6, phase one and phase two liver support, antioxidant protection. All that shows up on that one test. Again, it's called an organic acids profile. Um, Pretty straightforward. And then you can also measure for heavy metals and see if you do have a lot of heavy metals built in your system, built up in your system. You can do that as well. Either from urine or they have a hair analysis for that. You can do either of those. Okay. Yeah, so let's talk about neurotransmitters because that is a fun mm-hmm. and, and fascinating subject for me. I'm guessing maybe since you've started practice, you've probably seen a more – frequent occurrence of people with depleted neurotransmitters from whether excess financial stress or just more toxins. Is that a safe statement? That is correct. There are more and more people with all these different neurological problems that are directly related to either damage to the brain cells or to low levels of neurotransmitters. And you get the same effect either way, right? So like if if you think about the math in a simple way, let's say like you have a thousand neurons in your brain. You know, if 500 of them are destroyed, you're not going to have really great brain function. If you have a thousand neurons in your brain and let's say half your dopamine is gone, you're also not going to have very good brain function. So you can have either a deficiency of the actual neurotransmitters or you can have damage to the brain cells. You end up in the same place either way. The brain's not working properly. Right. So how, how far do genetics really spread? into neurotransmitters. I mean, if you look at someone and you ask them about maybe their mother or their grandmother or father, I mean, is it pretty set in stone? I mean, are you ultimately at a well, huge yeah. disadvantage there? Well, there's three three big factors that could go into a messed up brain, a damaged brain, broken brain. One would be the genetic factor. The other would be a deficiency because you're not eating the right diet. You're not getting uh, the right amount of... Um, stuff in your, you know, not, not a healthy amount of protein. That's obviously not a problem for paleo people. But you may not be digesting the protein very well. You can be eating enough of it. Or you could have a, a supply problem, right, that you're, you're burning up so many neurotransmitters because you're stressed that you're deficient. So you can have genetic problem, a deficiency, or damage. Damages, you know, the brain cells themselves are damaged. So if you have a genetic problem, that's pretty easy for most people to figure out because you'll see in one or both sides of the family – History of you know suicide or attempted suicide, depression, alcohol addiction, food addiction, other kinds of eating disorders, um, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety. You know either one or both parents will, you know their brothers or sisters or their parents. You know you just see a going up the family tree all these different problems. So one thing people do is is fill out. It's really helpful. Is fill out a genogram where you just get a piece of paper out. And then, you know, write your, your name down, your brothers and sisters, your parents, their siblings, their parents, and you just go like that. 
and make a little circle for everybody and then write down the diseases that you know about that each one of these people has and see what kind of patterns that you might have. And sometimes you'll see like depression, 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 bipolar, suicide, alcoholism, 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 uh, you know, going up both sides of the tree and you're like, wow, that's a problem. You know? yeah. my, my friend uh, Lynn calls that swimming in the shallow end of the gene pool. You know, it's not kind of funny, but it's like, it's not, you know, it's not unusual for you to be depressed if you see this on both sides of the family. And obviously there's a genetic component. Um, and so the thing is that whether you're worried about not detoxing well or whether you're worried about your brain being broken because of a genetic flaw, you can still supplement with the amino acids and with the detox nutrients to make up for whatever the problem is. So for example, if you were just born into a family that never makes enough dopamine, you can just take the dopamine precursor supplements based on the lab work and bring your levels back up to what normal would be. So even though it's a genetic issue, it doesn't have to be something that you live with. You can, that's the whole point of functional medicine is to determine where the flaws are, whether they're from poor diet or from genetics or from damage to the brain, and then to restore normal function. Now, if you have a genetic based, genetically based dopamine issue, clearly you might have to take more dopamine support or take it for longer than someone who just, for example, has a dopamine deficiency because they've been eating a high carb diet for a long time. Right? Someone who's had dopamine deficiency because of a diet problem, they might change their dopamine levels just by going on a paleo diet, eating more protein, right? And they don't have to take any supplements because they just, and this is, you hear this all the time, you go to these paleo conferences, people are like, yeah, I used to be anxious and depressed and I started the paleo diet, now I feel great. So that would be someone who had low brain chemicals because they were deficient in nutrients and they just did it with food, which is great. Now, you know, you could have a next door neighbor that did the same diet with you at the same time, and if they have a genetic flaw, the paleo diet might help them a little bit with the deficiency part, but that genetic issue will hold them back so they won't get the full benefit. So if you were to cut a gluten-free pizza, what piece of the pizza, how big would the piece of pizza be that's genetics? Oh, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm really not sure. And, I, you know, I have a very distorted view of this because – I work with a lot of people with broken brains. I mean, in my practice, I would say it's like maybe 20%. That's it. I figured it'd but, be huge. Yeah, but that's just my practice. So, you know, it's hard to know what's that representative of because, you know, these are people that just are acted to me for some reason and schedule a consult with me. So it's not, you know, I don't know, you know, these are people from all over the world. So I don't know what it's representative of. Yeah. But it's true. not the most common pattern. It's more common, more common to see... Well, the most common one is deficiency related to high stress or bad diet. Okay. Because I mean, we just see that all the time in almost everybody, right? That one's like 90% of people I work with had that issue, have that issue or had that issue until they got healthy with their food. That one's just so common because most people just eat so poorly. Um, and then the damage type, that's the one that's becoming more and more common as our environment becomes more toxic. It's, it's getting to the point where a lot of – probably most people have some – neurotoxin damage, you know, that probably most people in the United States have some brain cell damage from neurotoxins at this point. Right. So, so we talk about, we hear dopamine and serotonin a lot. And of course, GABA, mm -hmm. we, we're starting to hear about, I try to cover it extensively, but are people low across the board or are there certain commonalities that are, that are stemming from bad diet and stress together? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I actually know a lot about that. So let's see. You can be low in dopamine or low in serotonin, or you can be low in both. 
Some people are low in both. Um, and I think some of it, you know, there's a genetic component. Sometimes you'll see like low dopamine families um, where you'll I'll have like a, a daughter and a mom and a grandmother and they're all, you know, in the same low dopamine pattern. Other times it'll be more random just related to their life experience or what kind of toxins they may have been exposed to. Um, but not everybody's low in all of them. It really varies. And the symptoms vary too, you know, because some people are like – they might, some people might have like a exhausted, fatigued, you know, food craving kind of brain chemistry problem. And other people might have more like a constantly crying, weepy, distressed, anxious kind of framework, right? So there, there's different manifestations of this symptomatically as well. Really? So it, you almost need to get testing then. You can't just assume that you're low in dopamine because you don't have any motivation and then you start taking some dopamine precursors. That would be crazy. You shouldn't do that. You should not treat your brain unless you have a lab and someone who's not only that you have the lab test, but you find a doctor that's been doing this for a long time. It's not like the kind of, you don't want to be like that person's first brain test or something, you know, right. or you find someone who's been doing this for five to 10 years. I think around the 10 year mark, honestly, most practitioners working with the brain, figure out what they're doing around the 10 year mark. That's incredible. It's complicated. It's not an easy thing to figure out. You know, you, it's not right. So, so talk about your story a little bit. Cause I know that, uh, you talked with, uh, Dr. Noel about it, how you were told basically you need to be really careful with amino acids, you know, early on in your career because, and I, I think even myself and a lot of people in the health community, we love the idea of being our own doctors and self-treating ourselves and things like that and just popping amino acids and say things like 5-HTP and just we're, we're altering our neurotransmitters thinking it's some sort of innocent or benign thing, but you've learned it's not so innocent. Oh yeah, it's like, I don't know, we ever see these like made, you know, movies, kind of cheesy third-rate movies where the guy stands up and he wants to represent you know it's a criminal he wants to represent himself in court doesn't want a lawyer right and it's always really stupid people that do that you don't ever see like really smart people say you know um i'm going to represent represent myself in court yeah i mean it's complicated you don't want to represent yourself in court because being a lawyer is complicated you for sure don't want to treat your own brain even if you could run the labs you want somebody that's been interpreting them for a long time because it's there's nothing more complicated than the human brain and these amino acids I mean, they're sold without a prescription, but 5-HTP is just as powerful as Lexo or Prozac, and tyrosine is just as powerful as Wellbutrin. If you take enough tyrosine, it's just as powerful as cocaine or, or you know, uh, amphetamines like you know some kind of methamphetamine or speed. They're really powerful drugs. In our culture, we kind of hand out the drugs all the time, anyways. We people buy you know illegal drugs and. I mean, we put kids on amphetamines all the time, Ritalin and Adderall. I mean, it's crazy town. You know, we're not really even thinking. It's like it was, you know, 1900 when everyone was doing heroin and cocaine when they were legal. You know, so it's, you know, our culture is sort of weird with drugs and sort of cavalier with how we think about the brain. And um, you only got one brain, though. And if you start either taking a lot of prescription medications or a lot of amino acids, you can cause all kinds of problems. And then... And that is even worse because then you have to find somebody like me and then dig yourself out of it, you know. And it's it's ten times harder to fix someone who's been on a lot of medications or a lot of amino acids than it is someone who just is starting from scratch. You do a few labs and, and you figure it out pretty quickly. 
Right. Well, Dan, we're, we're glad you exist for this, but it seems like we need to start taking it more serious. And, you know, another thing that I've had experience with myself is Finibit, which I don't know if you know Finibit. It's, uh, it's basically just phenylgaba. That's a really popular supplement for people with social anxiety and things like that. And I had a friend who was taking it, and he was taking six grams a day. He, he, you know, so the dosage was supposedly 500 milligrams and he kept working his way up and up and up and up and he got to six grams of this stuff. And if he didn't take it, I mean, he was shaking, he couldn't go to sleep, he had huge anxiety and it was really scary to see that something sold as just a, you know, a GABA precursor calming supplement just, it, it took over his life. Yeah, that can happen with any of these amino acids easily. So when it comes to 5-HTP, that seems like something that's pretty close to candy. I mean, in the in the alternative health community where people will just assume that they have low serotonin and they want to improve sleep or relaxation or their mood and they'll just pop 5-HTP willingly. What is actually going on there and why would you not want to do that? Well, you you, you never want to assess whether something is working based on how it's making you feel. This is the primary tenet of functional medicine. Say that one more time because that's really profound. Yeah, you never want to assess how well something is working based on how it's, how it's making you feel. That's the biggest, most common mistake that doctors and patients make. So just because something makes you feel better doesn't mean that it's good for you. And it doesn't mean that it's helping either. Okay, that's that's where we all get tripped up because people have symptoms and then they figure if they're taking something that's relieving their symptoms that it's helping. But you could just as easily be doing something that's making you feel good that's actually making you less healthy. And we see that all the time. So what, what's, you, what's a couple of know. examples of that? 5-HTP, right? So 5-HTP boosts serotonin. And the more of it you take, the higher your serotonin goes. But it also has a depleting effect on dopamine. So it lowers dopamine at the same time. So if you take 5-HTP by itself for long enough, you could feel great initially because of the serotonin boost. But over the course of months or years, your, ser- your dopamine will drop more and more and more. So then you'll end up with a slightly different problem because now your serotonin was fixed, but your dopamine is low. So what is somebody who has high serotonin, but yet they have low dopamine, what would that type of person seem like? What would their personality or what would they, how would they act? You can never tell because it's all, it's, everyone reacts to these differently, right? So like okay. some people take 5-HTP, it boosts their serotonin, it knocks them out, they go to sleep. There's other people who take tyrosine and boost dopamine and it knocks them out and, go, and they go right to sleep. About 15% of people that we test take tyrosine, and it has the same effect in terms of how they feel as uh, 5-HTP does. There's no way you can tell the difference unless you're doing the labs. That's that's incredible. So, I mean, how should somebody feel on, an, on a daily basis? I mean, how should their, how should their moods go? How should their, their energy levels go? I mean, because it seems like if we're going for these, kind of like I mentioned, some of these daily neurotransmitter-altering things like music or coffee and... Uh, speeding on the highway and weaving through traffic. I mean, these are all changing our brain chemistry at the, you know, at the snap of a finger. But how generally should an optimal functioning human perform through their day? Well, we're supposed to wake up 
right around when the sun comes up or a little before. So, you know, five or six in the morning at the latest. Pretty much full of energy and ready to go. And you eat, you do your thing, you know. And you should be tired and ready to fall asleep within an hour or two after it gets dark. So that should be 8, 8.39. Think about when you go on a camping trip. Like how late do you stay up on a camping trip? You go to bed around 9 at the latest, you know. Um, I'm not saying that this is realistic or possible because very few people can pull this off. Um, and you should be eating, I don't know, depending on how stable your blood sugar is, you know, at least two times a day. Some, a lot of people need to eat three times a day. Some people who are blood sugar, you know, unstable, you need to eat as much as five times a day with some snacks. Um, and, you know, there should be no food cravings. You shouldn't be hungry all the time. You shouldn't crave sweets at all. Um, you can eat sweets when you feel like it because they kind of taste good, but... You know, you should be able to eat on a regular enough interval that you don't have much hunger or cravings throughout the day. And that's kind of like normal human existence. And, and I think the default is for people to be reasonably happy, maybe not ecstatic, um, unless there's something wrong. You know, something's going on in your life that's stressing you out. You, know, you can understand people be stressed. But Yeah, that's one of those weird middle grounds of, of humanity, isn't it? Happiness. I mean, we're past the hunter-gatherer stage, but yet we're not fully evolved into whatever we're going through right now. And so happiness is still not really necessary in terms of survival. And I guess happiness was never – I mean if you think about if you look at old pictures like from the 1800s and things like that. No one ever smiled like they do now. Now everyone – even if it's a fake smile, you're going to see a picture with somebody. They're going to be having the pearly white showing. You know, Isn't that mm-hmm. interesting how we've seen that, that change? Yeah, it is. But happiness is still sort of this thing that we have to kind of tinker with, and it's it's a, a growing topic. I mean, just look at the self-help category of iTunes podcast or books at, you know, half-priced books. I went there yesterday, and I was just amazed at all the different all the different advice, and, and it's amazing how, how much of that advice out there to attain happiness is probably going to lead people in the wrong direction. I mean, I've definitely seen books that will give blanket statements about amino acids and things like that but it's uh you know after talking with you it's really something that sounds like you have to be careful you have to take your time with this stuff and get somebody who knows what they're doing before you make yourself worse because like i said it's the supplement industry is great and it's good that we can have this stuff that's not uh, behind a, a doctor to you know at least we have access to it but at the same time it's uh it could be a weapon yeah, you have to be careful. It's not worth playing around with your brain because it's it's pretty hard to reverse out of things once you've dug a hole for yourself. So let's talk about other common neurotransmitter depleters or uh, builders. You know, alcohol and marijuana, cannabis, however we want to call it. It's very prevalent. It's huge. What are these things doing? I mean, are they both are they both working on your your calming? Uh, GABA receptors, or how do that? How does that actually pan out on a piece of paper? Well, a lot of people turn towards drugs or alcohol because they're self-medicating for low neurotransmitter problems, and um, that's pretty common. And they, you know, people figure out after a while that if they smoke marijuana or if they drink, that they get not really so much high from it, but they get a sense of normalcy from it, which sort of by definition implies that the brain chemicals were low to begin with and that you're sort of re-regulating things by by taking whatever the particular drug is. And then if people experiment enough with drugs, they may find 
you know, what's the combination that either makes them high or oftentimes with addiction that just kind of keeps them feeling okay. And then they're, you know, unable to stop. So that's your classic alcoholic would have, you know, low dopamine to begin with. They drink the alcohol, they get the dopamine rush, and they get addicted to the alcohol as much because of its effect on their brain as because of the actual effect of the alcohol and just being drunk. So then that kind of craving or addiction pattern is really hard for people to stop because they just get depressed and don't feel good when they stop. And then, of course, you know, you you can build up a tolerance for it, meaning you need more and more, and then it can start to kind of take over your life in a really negative way. So um, definitely brain chemistry balancing is one way to try to meet that same need of feeling like things are okay and that you're you know, relieving anxiety or relieving depression or whatever it may be, um, but in a relatively benign way where you're not you know, creating any kind of negative long-term impact like you would with a lot of the medications that we use or, you know, either prescription drugs as well. It's the same thing. Antidepressant prescriptions, ADD meds, um, sleeping medications, you know, all these kinds of drugs that people are so hooked on these days. Right. So, I mean, comparatively to prescriptions, I mean, if someone finds that a small amount of edible or, I mean, you can even get over the counter. I know you're in California, but even in 50 states now, you can get just plain uh, CBD drops, you know, cannabinoid drops that don't have any THC. So you're not going to get much of the cognitive effect, but it's just going to help try to satisfy those uh, cannabinoid receptors. I mean, in my experience, and maybe you can you can add to this, that's way safer than somebody being on uh, a pharmaceutical long term. Mm, I think it depends. I'm not sure about that. It's, that's, I don't think you could do a blanket statement on that. It probably depends on what the drug is and how addicted they are. But definitely, I mean, whether it's a prescription drug, I mean, the, the, the fact that we have some drugs that are done by prescription gives them sort of a, a veneer of legitimacy. But it, it, they're still really powerful chemical agents as much, as much as heroin or speed or cocaine are. And so they still have really powerful effects. You know, one of my teachers is this... Uh, psychiatrist and one of the things he said that was so funny once he was uh what did he say he said there's no psych you gotta imagine this in a british accent i'm not going to try to do it but rd lang was his name he's a psychiatrist from britain and he said there's no such thing as a side effect they're all just effects yeah <laughs> i thought wow dude that is really an important thing you just said they're all just effects so like for example I have all these female patients, they take an antidepressant and they can't orgasm and they don't want to have sex anymore. I mean, that's an effect of the drug. It's not a side effect. Maybe it's an unintended effect, but it's definitely an effect of the drug. You know, so you, you just want to think through these things. And it's the same thing with uh, amino acids, you know. They're going to have unintended effects if you don't. I mean, it's hard enough for someone like me who's been doing this for 20 years to figure this stuff out with a patient. You know, the idea of a patient trying to figure it out by themselves on themselves, it would be as insane as me deciding I was going to do my own brain surgery and just thinking that, you know, I'm not really a brain surgeon, but I'm sure there's an online thing on YouTube I could read, you know, or yeah. watch. You know, it's just like, and then I'll figure out the anesthetic. And, you know, I mean, it's just like, it's just not feasible. You just can't do that. It doesn't work. And I guess the way that the U.S. is set up, you know, you can buy these things in the store, so... People are free to do that, but um, you just have to, you know, have some common sense and, and, and protect yourself from yourself, I guess. 
Right. From the, te- from the temptation to do it, you know. Right. So, I mean, even short term, though. So, so, so let me throw this at you, keep you on this same topic. So, say someone finds out that a vaporizer and some cannabis is going to help them calm down. So, say we're going to be working on the, the GABA receptor there, as opposed to someone taking either a straight-up GABA supplement or um, maybe Relora or some other herbs or adaptogens or anything like that. I mean, can you... Or let's just say, so say they're taking all of those, these these more plant-based things, or they go and take olorazepam or some type of benzo. Is there, I mean, can you pick and say, yes, herbals are safer? Uh, I think it's it depends. I mean, intuitively, you would think that they would be. It seems like it would be. I mean... Um, but it's not always the case. Like, that really depends to, on person to person. You know, a lot of times people who can get things without a prescription, you know, end up taking them for year after year after year, and no one's monitoring them because they're buying it at a health food store, so they get no kind of feedback from anybody. So in some ways, you might have a drug like Valium or something that couldn't, you know, I guess you can just buy that on the street or whatever. I mean, people, you know, sometimes people get prescriptions for drugs like Valium and no one follows up with them ever. But, you know, I I think it really varies. And I think, um, you know, it's... uh, I don't think there is a safe way to do any of this stuff or just self-treat, really. Self-treating itself is just a bad idea. I mean, there's there's four things that you can self-treat with that I think are, are a good idea. Um, sleep is the most important self-treatment, I can imagine. Getting plenty of sleep, you can't go wrong with that. Um, exercise. You, know, you can over-exercise, but, you know, that's better probably than taking a drug. Uh, sleep, exercise, you know, reducing your stress. With something like meditation, which can change your change your brain chemistry more than anything, and um, you know what you're doing with your food. So those four can be as powerful as any of these other treatments we're talking about, and those are completely safe. You can do them all on your own. You don't need a doctor to tell you about sleep, exercise, meditation, or diet. And um, they can sometimes be more powerful than all these other things that we're talking about. And people kind of sometimes maybe skip over those. Even something like yoga. I mean, I'd rather have somebody do yoga every day for an hour and a half than you know, take a bunch of anti-anxiety herbs. Yeah. Something that's calming, or Tai Chi, or Qigong, you know, something that's physical but calming. Definitely. Yeah, I'm just, I'm glad that we get to cover this stuff because, and I want to expose that truth that you just, that you just hit on because people do want the shortcuts and ultimately your message and what I'm figuring out myself over the past few years, you can't really take shortcuts. There's almost no, there's almost no easy way to get what you want to do without putting in the work that you need to do. Yeah, exactly. Well put. So it's a, a a huge takeaway, I think, because people don't want to go take an hour and meditate. They don't want to go exercise 30 minutes, three times a week. They just, they want to pop a supplement it's a supplement it's safe it's organic whatever it's fine and we got to put in the work i mean it's just it's it's such a simple concept to hit on those four things you just mentioned but yet it could transform your life i mean when i was working third shift i was so mentally foggy forever until i was able to get on a normal sleep schedule now even on a saturday night when you're supposed to be doing crazy things at age 23, I go to bed at 9.30, but I feel great, and my brain works good, so I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> good for you. Yeah. So, so are you to the point now to where 
you've stabilized yourself or do you still have to go through periods where you go through extreme stress you'll have to add in some some support you know i don't know whether you're going to do amino acids or anything like that what does your own protocol look like oh yeah no i don't take any amino acids i but i meditate two hours every day that's good that's like my brain chemistry program so you uh, you feel yeah. like you don't even need or you wouldn't need them and if you do need them you would try to go for your own modification of your brain chemistry first. Yeah, I mean, I run labs on myself on a regular basis. If I if I tested really low and I really felt like I needed them, I would take them for a little while, maybe a couple months, you know. So but my labs are good and, and I don't feel bad. So there's not like a maintenance version of this. Like you don't take this stuff unless you need it, you know, basically. Right, yeah. I was just curious if, say, you go through a really hard week, your your clinic's crazy, you have to do 20 podcasts, you're going to do a public speaking event, you're going to sneak some little amino acid in your pocket for that week. No, I would never do that, no. So what's the secret to handling transitional stress periods like that? Just increase your time in nature, meditate more, sleep more? Wait. Well, yeah, if you're going into something like that and you have a built-up reserve and you're not burned out, then it's not a big deal. Right. It seems well, like I've no worked, one has a reserve. Well, yeah, that's because people aren't, you know, so people push themselves too far all the time. They burn out their adrenals in their brain. And then when new stress comes along, they can't handle it. But if you take the time to reconstitute yourself and you get your adrenals in your brain working right, then you can handle, you know, even six months or a year of stress when it comes up. Um, but most people are already burned out, and so when the new stress hits them, you know, they kind of crumple. That's really helpful. Well, well I want to leave here. we got to let you go here in just a minute, but uh, I wanted to quickly ask about the accuracy of urine testing for neurotransmitters because I'm under the impression that they can vary, I mean, pretty quickly. But what's your experience with them? Yeah, so the... There's something called the blood-brain barrier, which means that the neurotransmitters that you make in your brain stay in your brain and never leave your brain. So when you do a urinary neurotransmitter test, what you're actually measuring are the level of neurotransmitters produced by the kidneys locally there in the kidneys that are then dumped into the urine. So neurotransmitters that are in your brain get broken down, and they get dumped out as what are called organic acids, which you can measure with your organic acids test. But the actual neurotransmitters in the urine are synthesized freshly in the kidneys by the kidneys. So there's ways that you can test urinary neurotransmitters um, if you understand all the kidney physiology type of stuff, but it's pretty complicated. And then you can also test for the breakdown products of the brain chemicals that do show up in the urine. So what is, your, what is your preferred method then for figuring out brain neurotransmitters? Is It's the organic acids? Well, it depends on how severe the problem is. If they have a really severe problem, then the urinary neurotransmitter testing involving all the kidney pathways and everything is superior. And if it's a milder problem, you can do it with the organic acids. So what would you describe I, mean, I know as, how to do both. Okay. What would you describe as severe? Parkinson's disease. Um, the kind of depression where people, you know, don't take a shower, don't feed themselves anymore, or something like that. All right. Well, um, and then I guess we should leave people with maybe a couple actionable things. You've hit on a, a bunch of great stuff. I'm really appreciative to get to spend time with you. But if you were to be able to tell thousands of people, which I'm sure you do weekly yourself, 
what do people need to do to maintain sanity and uh, keep a keep a calm system as we head into what seems to me like a lot of uncertainties out there? Yeah, I would say, you know, number one, you should be ridiculously physically fit. Like, not just kind of fit, but like ridiculously fit. You know, I'm 50 years old and I was just with my trainer a few weeks ago and I did, uh, you know, kettlebell snatches, you know, two 50 pounders. Zoom. I didn't think I could do it. He's like, yeah, you could do it, Dan. I was like, I can't do it. He's like, yeah, you could do it. Grab two 50s. I was like, oh, these are heavy. He's like, boom. So you should be like, you know, I'm age 50 years old and I can do, you know, 100 pounds of kettlebells, boom, straight over. That's that you should be like ridiculously strong. That's number one. And then, um, and cardio and stretching and all that kind of stuff. Because if you're not physically fit, you just, what's the point of even being alive, y'all? And then um, your diet should be decent, which is kind of, I'm sure your listeners have that part figured out already. That's pretty important. And then the other two things really are just go to bed early at nine and meditate for anywhere from five minutes to, you know, a couple hours a day. And if you're the less likely, the less you, uh, the less you feel like you have time to meditate, probably the more that you need to. So if you think, wow, two hours a day, how does he do that? You know, then you definitely need to start with like at least five minutes and build up. You know, I think the minimum amount of meditation that really seems to make it work for people is about 40 minutes a day. That seems to be enough that people stay calm and centered and balanced. Um, And 40 minutes a day, I don't know, it's like one show on Netflix, right? It's not a whole lot of time. So is is your your two hours, is that broken up uh, throughout the day or is that one segment? Now I do two hours first thing in the morning when I first wake up. Yeah. So are you moving? Do you do moving meditation? Are you sitting, standing? What are you doing? Yeah, I do a Taoist walking meditation personally. But I mean, there's many other kinds out there. It's just the one that I like right now. That's kind of what helps me. I don't know specifically that one, but when I worked outside in a forest maintenancing trails, I learned to do a walking meditation myself. I didn't have any like specific name for it, but it definitely helps. Is that kind of what you do? Do you try to get outside and, and walk or? No, I do have a, a special meditation room. I do it inside. Oh. Okay. So what you walk it, you like, do you walk in circles or walk? Mm-hmm. Oh, you do. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Awesome. But sitting, I've done a lot of sitting meditation in the past as well. That's equally great. Just as long as you're doing it, right? Exactly. Awesome. And then I guess there was one more after meditation, wasn't there? Oh, going to bed at nine, you know? Yeah. Ridiculously fit, eat good food, go to bed at nine, and meditate for 40 minutes a day. I mean, if you do all that stuff, I mean, you probably toss out all the herbs and half the medications in the world, and we'd have a happy place here, you know? That's profound. You, you make it sound so simple. It's not. I mean, I mean, how many people do you know that do all that? It's not easy at all. Right. Like, hardly anybody. It's like a full-time job just to even think about it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's a work in progress, you know, I've, I've definitely gotten better at it. And there's periods of life where it's easier to slack off than others. But ultimately, I guess it's something, I mean, just like brushing your teeth, it's just got to be part of your, your routine. And you got to stick to that routine if you want to feel good. So exactly. Yeah. And then I guess if you get too broken, then they find you, uh, they can look exactly. up the, yes. K- the Kalish Institute. Mm-hmm. And you're aqua- across the web, and there's tons of resources out there. If people just Google search for Dr. Dan Kalish, they'll find tons of stuff on you. So uh, thanks for your time. It's been great talking to you. Welcome. Thank you. I Glad appreciate this. it. All right, bye now. Bye. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that one. As always, 
I certainly did, and I think I would like to get an organic acids test after this. I may talk with Dr. Kalish again and, and see what's up about me getting one. It may be interesting just to see. I think that's the important part about healthcare and the future of your health yourself is to take little snapshots at your health or even long-term snapshots to see how are your blood sugar levels, what is your fasting uh, blood sugar level, uh, what is your vitamin D level, what are your neurotransmitters looking like as far as are you deficient? Are you having an excess of something? It seems like depletion is far more common due to stress and toxins and nutrient deficiencies, but it's always interesting to see how out of whack you may be. And more importantly, it's much more easy to determine what route you need to take. So if you feel like you already have the diet thing nailed, you already have some of the lifestyle stuff nailed, but you still feel like you're off and you need to realign yourself, having something like these tests that we've talked about today gives you a good snapshot on a piece of paper where you can actually look at what you're trying to target. I think if we're confused about what we're actually trying to solve with our own health, it's going to be hard to make a direction you know, figure out which way to go. So that being said, thanks again. I'll let you go. But if you would head back to iTunes, it takes you a couple minutes to do it, whether you're on your phone or your MP3 player or your iPod touch or your iPad or your computer. But if you go to not just paleo on the actual iTunes program, click the ratings and reviews tab, leave some stars and write your review in there and let me know what you think. It's very important for iTunes and myself to see how the show is actually going. There's There's been so many positive reviews from around the world, and uh, I want to say thanks again to the people in the UK this week who left plenty of good reviews, and I hope to see more of your reviews next week, and that way someone else in need can find this podcast. So thanks, and as always, take care of yourself, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.